Thank you so much for the privilege to come and do this. Uh, I appreciate that kind response, and we'll see if that's still true when this is over. But uh, we're grateful that you came and did this because, folks, sadly, too many churches have given up on this service. And they should not because this is a service that matters so very much. Because without Good Friday, how could there ever be an Easter? There must be one for there to be an Easter. So tonight, would you take your Bibles with me, please? And open them to the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, and would you go to chapter 15 of the Gospel of Mark, and we'll be reading tonight starting in verse 15 through verse 34. And I don't know if you are in this practice of doing this, but at St. Clair Southern, where I've had the privilege to serve as their pastor for the last 20 plus years, we stand when we read the Word of God. So would you stand with me tonight as I read aloud For Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 15. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. Then the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison, and they clothed him with purple. And they twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head and began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him. And bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him out to crucify him. Then they compelled a certain man, Simon a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. And they brought him to the place, Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription of his accusation was written above, the king of the Jews. With him they also crucified two robbers, one on his right and the other on his left. So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, You who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking among themselves with the scribes, said, He saved others, himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him reviled him. Now when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, look, he is calling For Elijah, then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to take him down. 
Would you bow and pray with me, please? Our Father and our God, we thank you tonight for this reminder again of what your Son did for us, and not only what your Son did for us, but what you did for us and what your Holy Spirit did for us. You sent him down here from the wonder and the beauty and the glory of heaven, the majesty of heaven, where there was no sin, no sorrow, no pain, no sadness, and he became one of us. He lived a perfect life, and then he died a horrible, painful death. And tonight, God, we are here to remember that intentionally and on purpose to remember and think about were we there when they nailed him to the cross. Dear God, would you fill us with your spirit and with your words as we look tonight at that terrible, awful day that we call Good Friday. It was good for us, but so very, very painful for you and your Son and your Spirit. Dear God, would you speak to us tonight? Would you give us ears to hear that what we're about to say would bring glory and honor to you as we remember the day hell came out of heaven? And we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Over the course of history, there have been many days that shook the world literally shook the world. I think most of us here tonight could remember some of those days, several such days, from the past. So tonight I want you to go with me in your imagination, if you will, to the city of Jerusalem for the end of what we call Holy Week or Passion Week. At that time, three very unusual days rewrote the history of the world. It changed everything. During the Easter season, we recognize two of the greatest days in human history. We would call these days that shook the world. They literally shook the world. Concerning the first of these three days, we call them tonight here Good Friday. The calendar says it's Good Friday, but the truth is it is a very difficult thing to think of that day that our Lord was crucified as good. Oh, His enemies thought it was good, make no mistake. They thought that was wonderful. He's dead, it's over, finally at last, He's gone. But a better name for that day would not be Good Friday, but perhaps Black Friday. You saw in Mark's Gospel where he talked about the land was dark at the highest point of day, noon, from noon till three in the afternoon, darkness over all the land where Jesus was crucified. The day of the cross, the day of the death, uh, and the day of darkness is what we are looking at here tonight in Mark's gospel. In American history, we have these days, especially in the economic history of America, where we call Black Friday a very certain day that was used to describe that terrible day back in 1929, almost 100 years ago, when the stock market crashed and many men jumped to their death from tall buildings out of windows high in the sky. It was definitely the blackest day in the financial history of our nation. Over 30 years later, there was another Black Friday, another very dark day. Maybe you remember this date, November 22nd of 1963. I was just a child then. The day of the tragic assassination of our youngest president, 
John F. Kennedy. There have been other days that shook the world, no doubt. Days like Pearl Harbor, the day where we dropped the bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki back in 1945. Man landing on the moon in 1969. And of course, more recently, what we, what we remember is 9-11. That was my son's birthday. It is my son's birthday. Years ago, you, you know what happened on that day. If you're familiar with history, you'll have no trouble thinking of days like that. And other days, like this one, many, many, many years ago, hundreds of years ago, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, and started what we know now as the Protestant Reformation. You remember the days of history in the Old Testament where the exodus of God's people, the Israelites, left Egypt. You remember when various inventions occurred. And yes, I do remember being taught when Benjamin Franklin discovered electricity. No, I was not around back then. I know I might look that old, but I'm, I wasn't around back then. But tonight, I want to make it very clear to you that there were no days, no days in all of human history that ever shook the world as the days we observe on this day, this what we call Good Friday, and this coming Sunday, what we call Easter or the resurrection of our Lord. Those days literally shook the world. They shook the world. They changed everything. They changed all of history. They shook the world as the days we observe tonight and on that, this coming Sunday. On Good Friday, we remember here in the Gospel of Mark the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we're calling that tonight the day hell came out of heaven. And then on Easter, two days from now, as the Lord allows, we celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we call that day the day glory came out of gloom. Now, you may wonder why I'm calling the day of Christ's crucifixion, the day hell came out of heaven. Please realize that was the day when Jesus actually experienced God forsaking Him on the cross. We saw those words down there in verse 34 where He cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That had never happened to Him before until that day long ago. On that day, we can see a couple of things, and I want to share a couple of things with you here tonight. Actually, two kinds of hellishness, if you will. The first one I want us to look at together tonight is the hellishness of His sufferings. We begin there in verse 15, where it says, Pilate wanted to gratify the crowd. But even before Jesus gets to the place of the skull called Golgotha or Calvary, Please understand, earlier in chapter 15, he was subjected to mockery. You go back to verse 16, it says, they clothed him with purple, they twisted a crown of thorns. Folks, those thorns are several inches long, pushing and piercing into his skin, blood coming out from there. They had fraudulent trials, a mockery of trials, if you will. There were no dream teams of lawyers to defend our Lord before Pilate, before Herod. There were great injustices done to our Lord. The trials were supposed to occur publicly with an announcement before. That did not happen with Jesus. Jesus' trials were not like that. No trial was supposed to be conducted at night, and our Lord's were. There were several of them. 
Four out of the six trials our Lord endured were at night. And on top of all that, a truly innocent man was committed and convicted to die, sentenced to die, while the truly guilty man, the man named Barabbas, was set free. Now you tell me how that's fair. We scream about justice these days. Folks, this was unjust. Our Lord endured that for us. Secondly, Jesus was deserted. He was denied by His own disciples. They scattered and ran. Yes, Peter hung around close by, but you know what he did? He denied Him, not just once or twice, but three times, just like Jesus said He would. They had promised, we will die with you, Jesus. We will never leave you. And they ran for it when the pressure and the persecution came. As we said a moment ago, he was crowned with a crown of thorns. He was spit upon there in verse 19. That was one of the ultimate insults of a Jewish man to ever endure was to be spit upon. He was punched. He was struck. He was ridiculed by the soldiers. They bowed the knee, Mark says, down there in verse 18, and salute him and say, Hail, King of the Jews. You understand this was all to be mockery for our Lord. They did not think he was a king. They thought he was a poor excuse of one, but they want to make fun of him, and so they do. And as if all that were not enough, he was scourged up there in verse 15. Now, we would use the word flogged. Please understand what this means. I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, saw that film from back in 2004 when Mel Gibson made The Passion of the Christ. And he intentionally made that as graphic and as gory as possible. He wanted people to see what the passion or the suffering of our Lord was. Now, his view of the scourging of Jesus was not quite how it was done in history, but it goes something like this. You strip the victim naked, you tie his hands high above his head, and lift him off the ground ever so slightly so that his feet dangle, so the skin across the back and the legs and the bottom are tight. And then two men, each called lictors, with these little instruments in their hand called a scourge, a little wooden club with leather strips on it, with pieces of metal and bone and stone in it, would take turns striking the back side of the victim. And they would strike and strike and strike so many times and so often where they would tear the skin open where even sometimes internal organs would come out and the victim would die just from the beating. That's what's all wrapped up in that little word scourge there in verse 15. Now that's before he gets to Calvary. Before. Once Jesus got to Calvary, to Golgotha, he was nailed to the cross with iron spikes about five to seven inches long. And please understand, well, I know we, the Bible says hand, but in the Hebrew mindset, that included the wrist, because when you put the spike through the hand, it would tear off. It's through the bones of the forearm to hold the victim in place. And then one through his feet. And then the cross was dropped heavily into a, into a hole in the ground that was made for it, dropped painfully into the ground. Psalm 22 tells us in verse 14, that my bones were out of joint with all of your weight hanging on that cross. The idea being that you slowly die. The cross was meant to be an instrument of torture and pain where you would slowly die and you would eventually asphyxiate or suffocate because you couldn't get your breath because the weight of your body just kept dragging you further and further down the cross until finally you couldn't even get your breath anymore. 
than once he was on the cross, he endured more ridicule. Look at verse 24 with me. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them. They gambled for the few pieces of clothing. That's what casting lots meant. They gambled for his clothes, just like the Old Testament predicted. Verse 27 says more of it. There was a th- two robbers, one on his right, the other on his left. His position, the one of ultimate ridicule and disdain and disrespect between two thieves, two criminals, two crooks. You read on there, verse 29, those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Verse 31, the chief priests also mocking among themselves with the scribes saying, he saved others, himself he cannot save. Ladies and gentlemen, they admitted he saved people, but he says, well, let's see you save yourself. If you do that, then we'll believe you. Does anyone here tonight really think they would? They would not. Their hearts were hard, as the Bible says. They hated him. They had a lust for his blood, and nothing but his death would satisfy them. And then above all, he endured the excruciating pain of the cross. By excruciating, we mean literally out of the cross. Cruce means cross. X means out, so out of the cross. You understand when the nails go through the arms and the feet like that, it crushes and severs the nerves in the feet and hands. And it actually draws them into almost like a spasm where they're clenched because the nerves are damaged. As we said a moment ago, you can barely get your breath, and little by little, you slowly suffocate. But there's more than just the hellishness of his sufferings, his sufferings were horrible. And a lot of people think that's the worst part of this, the physical pain and torture. But I want us to look tonight also to why he suffered and what really made his suffering so hellish and so painful. And ladies and gentlemen, there's no other way to say this but to come right out with it. The reason this was so painful and so difficult and so sad was because, secondly, of the hellishness of our sins. When I call this day Good Friday, the day hell came out of heaven, I am more concerned with why Jesus suffered than what He actually suffered. You understand, crucifixion was nothing new. It had been around for a long time. The Romans had perfected it, so to speak, but other countries and cultures had started this long ago. Jesus wasn't the first man to be crucified. He certainly wasn't the last. So that is not the specialness of this. The specialness of this is why he was on that cross and what he suffered on that cross. Now, many people know some of the details of the crucifixion, but very few people across Hazelwood, back in St. Clair where Brendan and I are from, very few have any clue as to why the cross was necessary. And ladies and gentlemen, may I just simply say to you, the cross was necessary. Amen? The cross was necessary. It was necessary. It had to be done. Not because Jesus deserved it. Not because Jesus broke the law. Oh, please don't let anyone tell you that. Don't let any survey say, well, of course, Jesus was human, so he sinned like the rest of us. Ladies and gentlemen, he never sinned, ever. 
ever. Never in what he said, never in what he did, never even what he thought. Never sinned. Perfect in every way. And many people don't understand that. They don't know why the cross was necessary. A lot of folks would say, well, it's just because that's how he showed his love for us. He loved us this much. He stretched out his arms on the cross and he died. And that's how much he loved us. Folks, I want to suggest to you tonight that we have the meaning of his death in the words of our text here. I want you to focus especially on verses 32 through 34 of the passage I just read. These words themselves have often been misunderstood. People don't see. They don't get it. Some argue that Jesus just thought he was forsaken when he cries out. Did you notice that in verse 34? He cried out with a loud voice. This wasn't a weak voice. This is a loud voice. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some people say, well, he just thought he was forsaken. Ladies and gentlemen, he did not just think so. He knew he was forsaken. He knew he was. But they can't even imagine God ever forsaking anyone, let alone his son. But this was not the imagination of Jesus. This was real. This was real. God literally forsook his own son. And it begs the question, why would God actually turn his back on his own son? Because on the cross, folks, Jesus Christ became sin for us. If you're wondering where we get that, if you want to look this up later, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. And Paul writes, For he, God, hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. This was real. Why would God actually turn his back on his son? Because he became sin for us. He paid the price, took the penalty for our sins. Well, let's, let's be honest here tonight. What is that penalty? Is sin a big deal? Our culture says not really. Everybody sins. It's common. It's ordinary. It happens every day. It's no big deal. Ladies and gentlemen, can we just simply say here tonight as brothers and sisters in Christ, if you're sitting here saved, sin is a big deal to God. It is a big, big deal to God. The penalty for that sin is simply hell. That is the penalty. And what is hell? It is being forever forsaken by God. Forever. Turn with me in your Bibles for just a moment to 2 Thessalonians. Would you go there with me? 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Several years ago, I had the privilege to teach at Missouri Baptist University for almost 10 years. And I taught college kids. Old and New Testament history. And one of the things that most college kids don't gra grapple with or get or understand or grasp is that hell is forever. If they even believe there is a hell, they think it's not forever. Let me show you something from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, look at verse 9. Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica and he says, These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Brothers and sisters, hell is forever. It's not for a while. 
It's forever and ever and ever. Hell is being forever forsaken by God. Jesus became what we call in the New Testament our propitiation. The sin offering that turned away the wrath of God. Something had to pay the price for that wrath. And Jesus was that one who turned that away from us. The word propitiation means to be appeased or satisfied. 1 John chapter 2 verse 2 says that. Christ's sacrifice on the cross satisfied God's demands of God's holiness for the punishment of sin. Because we understand tonight God is not just love. He is certainly loving. But He is also holy, is He not? And because He is holy, He is the perfect judge. And when He sees sin, He must judge that sin. Someone, somehow, something must pay for that sin. And Jesus took our place. We sung it while ago. Jesus paid it all. He paid for our sin. Someone once put it like this. I deserve hell. That's what I deserve. Jesus took my hell. Now there's nothing left for me except heaven. Isn't that good? He took our hell, and there's nothing left for us but heaven. Now it's possible someone will say, well, you're preaching that old doctrine of substitutionary atonement, and I have one word to say to that. Yes! Yes, I am. Yes. This is the hardest part of the whole crucifixion experience for Jesus. The part from which he shrunk back in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before, where he prayed, Dr. Luke says, in such a way that blood drops were coming out of him. The medical condition is called hematidrosis, where blood vessels burst under the skin under intense pressure, and they come out through the sweat glands. Jesus prayed like that where drops of blood fell. And he prayed that somehow, Father, if it's your will, take this cup from me. You remember that? In the Garden of Gethsemane? If it's possible, let this pass from me. And yet he says, nevertheless, Father, not what I want, but what you want. He became sin for us. This does not mean Jesus was a sinner. Don't let anyone turn that around and twist that. Some wrongfully say that. They teach this. They preach that Jesus was a sinner. Oh, no, no. God required perfection. He could not be a sinner and be perfect. He became the sin for us, the sin offering for us. And he was separated from God for our sake. God separated himself from his own son. That had never happened before because of the response to our sin. God's response to our sin is separation. Unless something is done for your sin problem, you will be forever separated from God. Sin separates us from the fellowship and the communion with God in this life. And it finally ends in eternal separation from God in hell forever and forever. Heaven is forever, yes. So is hell. This separation from God is what hell is all about. People think it's the fire and the pain and the torture. Yes, it's there. There's no doubt about that. When people say, well, how can it really be that bad? Folks, these are just words to describe it. It, it can't show you the reality of it because we're not in there. And I pray tonight that no one is headed that way tonight, that you're all sitting here saved. But if someone is not here, I promise you, if you do not trust Christ, that's where you're headed is straight to hell. That's where you're going. Concerning this substitutionary atonement, remember back in the Old Testament when they began the Passover, when that feast started back in the book of Exodus, 
God told the children of Israel to kill and slay a lamb, to cut its throat and let the blood flow, to take that blood and sprinkle it on the doorpost and on the door frame, the lintels of the door frame. That lamb was to be their substitute. And he, God said to them, and when I send my death angel and he sees that blood, he will pass over you. That's where the word Passover comes from. In John chapter 1 and verse 29, when Jesus came to John the baptizer, please understand he was not a Southern Baptist. We all know that, right? He was a baptizer. But when Jesus came to him to be baptized, you remember what John cries out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He called him that. Who takes away the sin of the world. He didn't say Jesus was just a man from God or a man of God. He says he's the Lamb of God. As the Passover in the Old Testament was a symbol, so Jesus now is our symbol and our Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Aren't you glad tonight Jesus took your sin away? Aren't you glad about that? Well, what does all this mean to us tonight? If you have received His salvation, if you were born again, then I ask you to think afresh and anew tonight on how much you owe Him. Have you thought about that lately? How much do you owe the Lord? Jesus suffered all of these terrible things for undeserving sinners like us, like you and me, because Jesus cried out, He shrieked, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For undeserving sinners like us. I will never have to cry those words out in eternity because Jesus cried them out for me. Brother Pat and I share an affection for the great Baptist preacher from many years ago, over 100 years ago, Charles Spurgeon. Let me just read something to you about this. Those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, come from Psalm 22 that I mentioned a moment ago. Listen to this from Charles Spurgeon. No other place so well shows the griefs of Christ as Calvary. And no other moment at Calvary is so full of agony as that in which his cry rends the air, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that moment, physical weakness, he says, was united with acute mental torture from the shame and disgrace through which our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ had to pass. To make his grief culminate with emphasis, he suffered spiritual agony, surpassing all expression. This was the black midnight of his horror, Spurgeon says. It was then that he descended into the abyss of suffering. No man can enter into the full meaning of these words. Some of us think sometimes that we could say and cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yes, he says, there are times, there are seasons when the brightness of our Father's smile is eclipsed by the clouds and the darkness. But let us remember, he says, that God never really does forsake us. What does Hebrews 13, 5 say? I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Never. But our Lord endured this for us. Now, can I just say tonight, this is something that is simply amazing. Are you amazed that Jesus died for you? He lived a perfect life. That's amazing in itself. But He died for sinners like you and like me. 
Folks, I find that amazing. And I'm just going to come out and say it. It's more amazing than the latest iPhone, right? <laughs> Brother Pat and I had this bond over many things, and one of those is, now, he has one of those smartphones. I have, I guess, what you call an old flip phone, the dumb phone, as he likes to call it. I am not electronically gifted, not at all. And let me clue you in, neither is your pastor, okay? <laughs> he is not. But some folks get all excited about electronics. Ladies and gentlemen, that is nothing compared to what our Lord did for us. Jesus died my soul to save, we sang. That He could love me, a sinner, so much that He endured such a penalty, paid such a price. And yes, I'm amazed that I don't love Him more and more and serve Him better and better as I should. But that's if you've been saved. If you have not received the salvation provided by the Lord Jesus Christ, and please understand, we're not talking about your name on a church book. We don't mean that. We're not talking about you getting wet in the baptistry. We're not talking about your dad or your grandpa being a deacon. We're talking about have you trusted Christ? Have you put all your hope, all your faith, all your confidence, all your trust in what He did? Because, ladies and gentlemen, He is the only one who can save us, is He not? He is the only one who can save us, is He not? The only one. And if you have not done that, I would ask you and plead with you, seriously, I plead with you, to think deeply and to think seriously about what's waiting for you apart from Christ. Look at the cross. See Him there. For just a glimpse of what hell is like. That's just a glimpse. He was on that cross only six hours. From nine in the morning till three in the afternoon. If the thought of enduring the wrath of God had such a powerful effect on the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane that Mark says back there that He began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Back there in Mark chapter 14, verse 33. And to be very heavy, knowing what was coming just a few hours from then, how much more effect it should have on all of you who are running straight toward the gates of hell. Straight toward the wrath of God. But I leave you tonight with some good news. The good news is you don't have to experience God's wrath. You do not have to be forsaken. You do not have to endure the penalty of eternal separation from God. Because the Lord Jesus Christ has paid the penalty in full for all those who turn from their sins and receive Him as their Lord and Savior. We say it and we sing it. Jesus paid it all. All of it, all to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but He washed it white as snow. Turn to Him now. Turn to Him. And you will be able to sing those same words. Jesus paid it all. Amen.
Would you bow and pray with me again, please? Our Father and our God, we bow and we thank you again that you gave your only begotten Son, the Son that you loved more than we could ever understand. You gave him to die for wretched sinners like us. He never sinned in any way, shape, or form. He was innocent through every trial he endured, and yet he suffered so, so much. Thank you, Jesus, for doing that for me. Thank you for doing that for many, many people. Thank you that you made it possible for us to be saved, to be forgiven, to know that if this were our last night on earth, we could sleep peacefully knowing that Jesus holds us in his hands and Jesus has paid for all our sins. Father, we're asking if someone is here tonight, some man, woman, boy, or girl, who has never trusted you, never put all their hope and faith and confidence in you, we ask tonight that they would give themselves to you, trust you, cry out to you, please forgive me, Jesus. Please, please come live inside me. Take control of my mind, my heart, my soul, my body. Take all of me and live in me. And I surrender all of myself to you. We ask tonight that that would happen, God, if there's someone here who's lost. But Father, if everyone here tonight has trusted you, believed in you, followed you, obeyed you, given their life to you, may we be reminded again and again, not just tonight, but every day, what Jesus did for us. And that we would never, ever get over it. But it would be a new and a fresh and again, shining in us so that we would see that our life has point, a point, our life has purpose, our life has value and worth, not because of us, but because Jesus, you died for us and gave us life eternal in heaven and life abundant down here on earth. Dear God, we pray that your will be done in this church, in our hearts tonight, that we would have had ears to hear what you're saying to us from your gospel. And for us to remember this day forever and ever, the day that hell came out of heaven for the sake of sinners like us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.